welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. Um, Bill Kim from Chicago uh, owns two restaurants called Urban Belly and Belly Q. And we have a cookbook called Korean Barbecue Master Your Grill That's Awesome. You were born in Korea and raised in the Midwest. Now, how old were you when you moved to Chicago? I was seven years old. And I would love it if you could describe your first day of school. Oh, my God. Traumatic. <laughs> That's the first word that comes out. Yeah. And it wasn't even a first day of school. It was uh, my very first day was I itched. And I didn't even know what that meant because I was so horrified to to go to a new school or just even an American school. So. I convinced my brother who was, uh, I believe he was six. I think we, it would take a year off. So we started at eight and he was seven. And I was like, let's not go. Let's go hide in the alley. And there was like a, um, almost like a basement that we could walk down and we hid there. And what happened was the whole school was looking for us. Oh my and my gosh. mom did not know where we were. And I don't know, I've never done that in my entire life, but I was so horrified because I was no longer with my parents. We were going into a strange situation and we didn't speak the language. And that's the first reaction I had. Let's go hide. Let's not go. So that, that was my very first day of school. Reading in the book about how difficult the transition was for you, I kept thinking about how hard it must have been for your parents. Yeah. Um, you know, my parents just moved here because they wanted a better life for us. Uh, I didn't know what that meant for us being so young, but they had to give up a lot. My mom had part of her family here, but a lot of her family in Korea. And my dad had all of his family there for some reason that they felt compelled to drop everything and give us an opportunity. And it really was an opportunity for us because um, in Korea, there were three or four major universities. And if you did not get into those places, you could not move up in the world. You know, the American dream is you work hard, you achieve, and you become successful. It, it doesn't work like that in majority of the, the world where you work hard, if you're not educated or you don't reach a certain uh, class, you stay there no matter how hard you work. So for, for my parents to come here and take that chance, take that opportunity and give us a chance to succeed. I mean, I lived the American dream. I, I worked hard. I didn't speak the language. And, you know, I, I love what I do and I have a choice. And that was important to them to give us a choice to do what we wanted to do. So they took a huge opportunity, a huge chance and gave us a great opportunity to succeed. Now, when you cooked at home growing up, your food was Korean with American touches. What were some of the American touches? <laughs> so we would do uh, fried rice with... Uh, hot dog and kimchi. So that was, you know, my mom way of her way of kind of giving us some kind of uh, a protein 
<laughs> if you call that a protein, which I, I, I love to this day. Um, she would also take Spam and batter it in like an egg wash and kind of toast it and saute it and give it to us in that way. Um, we would, believe it or not, and this is not uh, combining any cultures, my mom used to love making lasagna. I don't know why, but we would eat lasagna for days. And really? she would make big pans and we would put it in the freezer and we would take it out. So that was her, one of her things. She made lasagna. I don't know where she learned the recipe, but we would always have lasagna in our freezer. That had to have been a neighbor. Well, we, we had a, we had, uh, American family next to us and we had an Italian neighbor next to us. And my, two of my friends growing up, one was like hardcore Italian and another was a Southside Irish person. Um, and I would go to their house and I would pick days because I knew Friday, my friend Joe McDermott's parents, they were both police officers. And I knew every Friday was pizza day. I was like, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we, in our household, was whatever was left over, we're going to eat. There was no menu. There was no planning. It's like, hey, we have a lot of this and we have to use it or it would, it would go to waste, which was never uh, happening in our house. But Friday, I was always at Joe's house. And Wednesday was Prince spaghetti day at my friend Tony's house. So I knew those two days, I knew what I was going to get. At my household, never knew what we were going to get. It was probably leftovers two days from uh, before. But you will never find me at our house on Fridays because I was always at Joe's house. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then... Your junior year of high school, you went to a college night at the local junior college, and that's when it yeah. all came into focus. What happened when you told your folks that you wanted to attend culinary school? Parents' reaction, I thought it was going to be like, what What are you thinking? Because nobody in our family, no friends, uh, nobody I looked up to never did anything like this. But my parents are, if you want to do this, you got to study hard and you got to do this. And I was kind of like, okay. Uh, I thought I was kind of living a dream because my parents said, go do it. If you're going to do it, you got to put everything into it and put your heart into what you do and you got to love what you do. And I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try this. And, you know, I'm not, back then I wasn't a risk taker. So in order for me to go to this school, I found the cheapest way possible, which would go through a junior college. And I loved it because I just have to kind of memorize recipes. And there is a cookbook to this day, and it's like torn apart. I got tape on it. It's called the Wayne Gislin uh, Professional Cookery. I read that cookbook from 1 to 128 pages. And you know what those were? They're the mother sauces. Oh. I know that. And it really made an impact. And really, it, it, it was the starting point for, for this book because that's how I learned how to cook. And that really made it easy for me because it put it into focus of five mother sauces that you have to remember. From there, you get the derivatives 
of these sauces. And I'm just like, wow, I just have to remember five. Then I can remember 85. And I just kept on putting that into my career. And that's how we cook at the restaurant. That's how I teach people how to cook. And, and I'm just like, why can't we put it in the book form? As a home cook, I find Korean sauces baffling, and it made me feel so much better to know that even Daniel Balud called Korean sauces mystifying. Yeah. So, um, and and you do you have you describe the Korean sauces uh, like the French mother sauces. Describe some of the mm-hmm. Korean sauces. Sure, like I think one of the very basic and very pronounced is like the Korean barbecue sauce. So it's it's predicated on sweet, tangy, but it all it's multi purpose, right? It, it it you also have a thing as a tenderizer, which is fruit is used a lot in, you know, Korean cuisine. Uh, either Asian pears or apples or sometimes, you know, to kind of tenderize the meat. Because there's enzymes that kind of break down the meat. There's kiwi used or uh, a soda, things like that. Because in Korea, there's not a lot of pasture land. So a lot of the meats that I, that I grew up eating as a kid was usually a, a tendon or a big hunk of meat that needed to be braised or marinated to break down the toughness. So... You know, when we talk about um, Korean sauces, these are some of the the earthy, the the gingery, the garlicky, um, some spice, but it's not always spicy, and um, it's it's really um, earthy flavors that really haunt you in having those tastes linger throughout after you have eaten it, and it's really it's full flavored. That's what Korean cuisine and using some of those ingredients get you. So after culinary school, you met a game changer in your life, Charlie Trotter. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so I had this bright idea that I wanted to travel, which I certainly did. Um, but I moved to Atlanta. The day of my graduation, me and my brother drove to Atlanta to work for a French chef. His name is John Bonchet. Pretty well known in Chicago. He used to own a restaurant called uh, La France. And that's where a, a lot of the chefs trained in Chicago have worked and passed through to, to get their training. Um, but I also want to go to Atlanta because the Olympics were happening back then. And I lasted a year and I was so homesick. I, I came to Chicago back and I had these contacts, I talked to these chefs and basically asked them, hey, if you were me, young, and only wanted to focus on just cooking, didn't matter how much I was getting paid, I just want to be a sponge, wanted to, to work with the best. I've talked to three chefs, they all pointed to the same restaurant, and it was Charlie Trotter on 816 West Armitage. Yeah, I remember that. And I'm just, yeah, and I'm just like, what is he doing or what is he not doing that makes everybody point at the right direction? And when I got there, my mind was blown. We were doing like crap, like fresh crab from Maine using mango and fresh water chestnuts. 
I mean, I was used to making crab cakes, heavy butter sauces, and here we are doing something totally foreign to me. And I'm just like, I'm going to eat this up and I'm going to take this opportunity and I'm going to ride it <laughs> till I fall off. And the, the thing that I learned, um, beyond cooking until this day that I have learned is being part of a community, which means giving back. That has taught me and molded me to who I believe that I became a chef. To, to be able to, to say, you know, Charlie, yes, he taught me about cooking, but he really taught me about giving and giving back. That was the lesson that I took away. And to this day, I give back and give back to the next generation and also give it to people who, who need it and give them an opportunity to grow. And, and that's a very important lesson that I took away. And, and honestly, with all the chefs that I respect, that I work for, they couldn't even come close. All together, they couldn't even come close to what Charlie did for community and people who needed help that he would reach out and lend a hand. So that was a very important lesson that has molded me and grounded me to this day. You wrote about your time with Charlie. I never got to meet the customers and miss the feeling of taking care of people by feeding them. Do you think you had to do the French food thing to realize that really where you wanted to be and where you felt comfortable was at a less formal restaurant that paired uh, your Korean heritage with your Chicago upbringing? Um, I wanted, it, it partly it's true, I wanted to, to never look back on my career. What that meant was I have to work for the best, no matter what. And I have to start with a classic foundation of cooking that I really wanted to learn. Because if I went straight to Asian food, I would always wonder what it felt like to do something classical. So I had to get these things out of my system. But what I've learned when I was working in fine dining, um, you know, I did meet some of Charlie's customers and you know, I know them, but, you know, they were so elevated in what they did and how they did it. And I was just like, man, like, I, I never know what a CEO company does. I've always wondered about it, but, you know, the only thing that we had in common was food. And that was okay for a time, but I wanted to know about people's families. I wanted to know about you know, how these people met. And the only way you get to do that is sit down and you get to really talk to people, know them, you know. And as as our restaurants got casual and we got to meet people, man, like you hear the stories and that, to me, that is the essential part of a restaurant that you connect with your customers and get to know them, you know. I've seen so many babies that once somebody has dated, gotten married, some of them at our restaurant, and have their first kid, and they have the first bite of solid food at our restaurant, man, that is like, that is something that stays with you. And you're like, wow, I've seen my nephews grow eating our food. And 
you don't really see that at the high, you know, high-end restaurants. You, you, you see it, you'll celebrate it, and they might come once a year. But I see some of these people that our customer, our supporter, and in many ways, our restaurant family, and you see them twice a week. And we're, we're right by a, a preschool. I see a same girl. I think she's probably like five years old and she came up to me and was like, Oh, I love your restaurant. And <laughs> a five year old girl come up to you and say that you're just like, wow, that is like connecting in a whole different level because you're, you're starting by <laughs> this five year old girl having standards and eating your food and they're like, they're saying that. It, it might be coerced through the parent, but I see her every Friday. I'm going to see her today <laughs> and I know what she's going to have and we usually give her a little softer ice cream when she's done and you know, until she finishes preschool, I know she's going to come back every Friday and I know what time she's going to come. I know the parents are going to come. So, that kind of emotional connection, it's it's different. It's on a different level than a lot of the higher restaurants, higher-end restaurants. It's funny because at the beginning of our chat, you said that you didn't think of yourself as a risk taker. But I definitely think you're a risk taker. Now I am. But when I was a kid, I it was so important for me to to give back to my parents what they had given to me and it was you know I look at how my parents took the chance to come here and I I didn't want to take a chance and not be successful so I just put my head down and went pick up many cookbooks as possible for me to work endless hours and I just did what what I was shown and they were the example of if you want to talk about work ethic, 35 years, six days a week, washing people's clothes, yeah. it's very humbling to see them do what they didn't want to do, but they did it for us. So it was very important for me. I had a choice. They didn't. So in order for me to not succeed, I would have been a failure. But I said, there's no way in hell I grew up here. I speak the language. I got educated here. I'm going to make it happen no matter what. So with that knowledge, with that example of them doing what they did, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to go. You know, obviously part of that risk was my wife that basically what she said to me when we opened up our very first place with no investors, she's like, you know, we're going to do this together. We're going to jump off the cliff together. And, you know, she's, of Puerto Rican descent, a very strong-willed lady, and she, we did it together, and that was also very important for me. So she, she is the risk taker. I'm the risk taker passenger, and she's really kind of made me come out of my shell and made me pursue things that, you know, I would sometimes second guess, but she is a strong lady that I love dearly, and she's part of our success. And she was the first female captain at the legendary Daniel restaurant here in New York City, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that is incredible. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so talk about how you've blended culinary cultures together. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just natural. Um, I think there was that same moment when we started putting things together was, you know, I asked the question 1993 to a, a French chef that I worked for. And I said, you know, if you go out to a Vietnamese restaurant, how does that influence your food, chef? And he kind of laughed in my face and said, I, I am French. Why would I put anything else than French? A light bulb came out and there was another incident where uh, another French restaurant I used to work at and uh, a chef gave me lemongrass. He's like, what do I do with this? And I'm just like, I don't know nothing about lemongrass because I'm not Thai or Vietnamese. I'm not Southeast Asian. I'm Korean. I could have gotten mad at that, but I'm just like, man, I should know what this is. I'm going to know everything what this lemongrass is made with. And I'm going to be the guy who knows how to use this more than anybody else in the kitchen. That was the opening that I needed. That was the push that I needed to find out what I could learn doing research and knowing other ingredients from other parts of the world because, you know, not a lot of people are open-minded. So I started seeking out all different types of cuisine and learning the techniques and almost interchanging ingredients, which meant, example, water chestnuts is used in Asia all throughout, and it's found fresh. Here, it's used a lot of time, used canned, and it's not even close to what the fresh water chestnut tastes like. But what can we find an ingredient that kind of is similar? Then we did starting doing research. Hickama was the perfect example of that. So, you know, as I got to, to know my wife's culture, eating you know, plantains, tostones, you know, in, in Puerto Rican culture, the, the tostones or tubers or anything like that is used instead of potato. And the plantain is used like a bread in a sandwich. I'm just like, wow, that is so crazy that it's, it's right in my face. And we opened up a restaurant called Belly Shack and it was a love story total food. And we, we did what's called a hibarito sandwich, and it was just basically pressed plantain sandwich with Korean barbecue and, like, sticky brown rice, and, you know, that, that started it. So I wanted to kind of express my love for my life through food, and Belly Shack was the restaurant. And those memories, so some of those, those dishes is still in part in our uh, current restaurants, and we are doing what's called the mafungo, but it's boiled plantains. And in, in the Puerto Rican culture, they actually take bananas and fry it. But uh, they also add pork skin and lots of garlic. So we're going to lighten it up by adding, we're going to boil the, the plantains. We're going to add like tofu in there to kind of give it creaminess. And we're going to add tortilla for the crunchiness. But we're actually going to season it with one of the mother sauces from the boat, Mechan, which is light, zesty, tons of flavor, tons of umami. So we're, we're kind of doing that dish take on our version of, you know, Asian Latin barbecue. 
I've never heard anything like that in my life. That sounds amazing. It's delicious. Delicious. So in the cookbook, I love the idea of starting out by choosing the sauce or seasoning powder you want to make. And then the list of the recipes that it pairs with is right on the same page. That's brilliant. Talk a little bit about that. I think that really made the book, really. And a lot of people think of Asian food to be all technique and how do I get all these ingredients and once I'm done, and this is the most important important part, once I'm done, what do I do with all these sauces that I have two cups of or these bottle sauces that I, I could only buy in 32 ounces? So I thought about that because I, you know, cook at home and I do it professionally. I just don't like having a lot of condiments all over. So how do we um, focus? How do we take the the sauces that you have bought and and reuse it so you're constantly using it in your daily cooking? And it's not like, oh, I'm going to do a stir fry and I'm going to have soy sauce sesame over and over again. Why can't you have some of these master sauces prepared in the freezer or refrigerator and use it maybe in your hummus? which I have in my refrigerator every single day. But sometimes I just don't want to have taste of bean and garlic. Maybe I'll add a little bit of Korean pesto and kind of liven it up. Um, then you could also, if you're making canned soup or chicken broth or whatever, why can't we add two tablespoons of the pesto in our broth? So you want to have pasta salad? Okay, here you go. So it was using these mother sauces being multi-purpose and also being part of your daily life. And and I think that all came from having a casual restaurant and being part of people's lives every day instead of once a year. And this keeps on, you know, giving you kind of the guidelines how to do that with the matrices that's in the book where you have the leftovers and you're adding and subtracting uh, you're having the mother sauces and having the, the map of these mother sauces in the front with the recipes that accompany that and also in the back that you don't have to go back to like seven different pages. So it's right there. So really, really, we focused on the end users and how they like to cook and how you could use this as a template for your cooking. And my purpose was to to have the book, the binder be broken because you're using it so often. It's so smart and nothing goes to waste. No, absolutely not. I you know, we're a family of two, me and my wife. And I always have to you can't buy one piece of carrot. I mean, you can, but that one carrot's still gonna last you for days. One piece of celery no, it's a lot of bulk buying that we have to do. And sometimes we don't want to eat exactly the same thing. So we like to kind of jazz it up. And that the whole idea came about to, to, to kind of jazz up your leftovers and, and make it differently. Because my wife hates eating leftovers. I love it because it makes me creative and makes me, you know, the one 
huge disaster I had was like refried bean pasta. She still gives me slack. Oh my God. What was that? That was a disaster. It was, we had some refried beans left over and I'm just like, my wife is gluten free. So I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll try gluten free penne and maybe (laughs) I'll do a tomato sauce with refried beans. And it was, you know, it was tasty when it was cooked at that moment. But as it sits, it starts uh, taking on some of the, um, the bean dries the pasta out and, you know, the tomato sauce soaks into the pasta and she ate it like the next day. I was like, hon, it was so good when I made it. And she's like, I need a gallon of water after I <laughs> this to this day. That was the number one disaster that she still, every time I do something, she's like, don't give me that refried bean pasta because I don't want it. <laughs> so chef has You'll disasters never forget. in her kitchen. She will never forget. Never. But the leftover chapter was very, very proud of how that came out. And, you know, and also the master sauce chapter where you're buying like an avocado and being able to add the lemongrass sauce to a piece of avocado. I think, you know, people when they cook, they always feel like they have to do a recipe in order for them to make something. And it, I, I take the different approach. You already have these master sauces. Why can't you buy a roasted chicken that's ready to go? Not everybody's going to have the time to do it. So now you could jazz it up. Now you could, you know, take the meat apart and you might just have a bought chicken stock, then buy something like a noodle. And now you could have your almost like a Asian broth with, you know, maybe a magic taste in there. So a little spice, little um, fennel and you have shredded chicken and you might have pasta. So you have chicken noodle soup like instantly without, you know, having a can or something. It's just enhancing your daily cooking what you want to do or batch cooking if that's what you do. Over the weekend, I made a few recipes out of this cookbook. First was your Co-Rican sauce on page 41. Um, mm-hmm. Incredible. Now, how did this sauce come about? I, I asked my mother-in-law because my wife does not cook. She's a critic, but she does not cook. So my mother-in-law is a great cook and she's actually, I dedicated the recipe to her, but you know, she makes this like sauce. We we have it for Thanksgiving all the time. And she calls it lechon turkey. It's a lechon style, which just means lechon is a pork, but it's usually that lechon is marinated in vinegar, oregano, garlic. But, you know, obviously we have to put our kind of take on it, but, you know, we had a little curry powder to make it a little bit different. But it's, it's just, I've never used vinegar prior to meeting my wife in a marinade because we're, you know, that's going to, it's going to be too overpowering. It's going to make things sour, but honestly, like it brings the protein alive and it just, it also makes it juicy and the penetration with the vinegar through the marinade, it's just tasty. I could even taste it in my mouth right now, but just <laughs> it's so easy because it, it asks for things that you Probably have. I have oregano in my pantry all the time. That I, those are staples. So I have garlic powder, oregano, 
We always have vinegar and we always have olive oil. So I'm already there. So that's what I started thinking about. I'm like, what can we make that a lot of people might have these ingredients? And it's simple. You're just putting things in a food processor or you could even do it manually. And you have this like beautiful sauce and paste. And now you just put it over a piece of protein and you grill it. It's delicious. Yeah. So then I marinated uh, the pork chops, your Co-Rican pork uh-huh. chop recipe from page 85. And I marinated it all day. It was oh, so wow. good. That's so great. I also made your nuck chom sauce. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, from page 43, and I drizzled that over the pork chop. And mm-hmm. that was amazing. Those Thai chilies really gave it some heat. Okay, yeah. Then you know what you could also do is take, I mean, prior to, you could take some of the marinade, right, before you put it in the meat, and the nut chom, then get a whole bunch of cilantro or parsley, and you could, you could put that in the food process, then you have your chimichurri, also. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so if you have some left, I do. That's what you could do. All right, you got to do it. So I also made your kimchi potato salad from page one seventy four, which was crazy. I've never eaten potato salad like that, and I think every Korean barbecue place should have this potato salad instead of the regular mayo one. Oh my god! So that is my complaint. I'm like, what? I'm like, where do people learn how to make potato sauce? I mean, potato salad with mayonnaise. I'm just like crazy. From my I'm mom. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just like they learned it what? from my mom, Marilyn. Yeah, I'm. I'm just like, why you have this beautiful <laughs> kimchi at your restaurant that you make, and you guys are already doing potatoes. So why? It's that's the thing that drives me crazy because everything is there to do the kimchi potato salad, right? Yeah. Everything's there in, in a Korean kitchen or a Korean restaurant. Why does it have to be mayonnaise-based potato salad? I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't get it. Maybe after the book comes out, maybe switch to kimchi potato salad. Hopefully the word will get out. Yeah, yeah. So where can we find your restaurants? Um, so the restaurant, obviously, is in Chicago. Um Belly Q and Urban Belly is in the same building, 1400 West Randolph. Then we have another Urban Belly. It's in the Wicker Park um, area of Chicago. Sometimes I pinch myself to see if this is all real. And it's it's very humbling for me to, to be at this point in my life where I could kind of tell our story through a book and you know, hopefully people who are listening to the podcast that could come and join us and, and taste, taste a little bit of, you know, love story, total food in, you know, in an urban setting. Where can we find you on social media? Um, on my Instagram, um, it's Chef Bill Kim, Belly Q Chicago um, on Facebook and Urban Belly Chicago on Facebook. And same thing for the Instagram uh, Bellic Chicago and Urban Bella Chicago on Instagram. Thank you for telling the story of Korean barbecue your way. And thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate and review Cookery by the Book. 
You can also follow me on Instagram at cookerybythebook. Twitter is I am Susie Chase. And download your kitchen mixtapes, Music to Cook By, on Spotify at Cookery by the Book. Thanks for listening. <laughs>